Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. This week, game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly will review a cooperative game and have a related design discussion. Hi, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, everybody, and today we're looking at the newest game in the Oniverse collection, Arion. And that's exactly what our design discussion is going to be on, is creating games in a universe. So we're not talking about games that are mechanically similar. We're talking about a thematic connection between your games and the design discussion. Yeah, it should be an interesting discussion with it kind of zoomed out to look at the connections between games instead of just a one single game and the mechanics within it. It should be kind of interesting. But today we're going to focus on Arion, which is the newest game in the series. And I'm not going to do a whole lot of discussion on theme here, because if you've played any of the Oniverse games, you know that there's just a loose thematic connection. They're mostly pretty abstracted games. Here you're a shipwright trying to make basically the prettiest fleet of ships. But again, I don't know that that comes through as you're doing the mechanics, and you'll hear in the mechanics discussion in a minute that... Yeah, I mean, it's a little abstract. (laughs) Yeah, I can't really argue with you there. So, uh, rules-wise, this, like the other Oniverse games, is a solo, mainly, game that you can also play two-player. And the game comes with several sort of optional mini-expansions that you can mix and match or play with all of at once. But just to discuss the basic rules for the core game, you have six airships you're trying to build, each one requiring a type of crew a type of sort of propulsion, and a blueprint for the airship's design. So the cards required to build these airships are divided among six piles, and each pile needs a different combination of dice results to grab it. So for example, one of the easiest piles just needs uh, two pair of results. So like two twos and two threes would be sufficient to get that card. One of the hardest piles needs a run of five numbers in a row. To get these cards, you roll six regular D6 dice, But you can mitigate your roll by discarding the cards that are available from the six different piles. There's one card in front of each pile to let you re-roll as many of the dice as you want in sort of a Yahtzee-ish method. So you keep on discarding cards to re-roll until you either can acquire a card that you want or until you've discarded all the cards. You win the game if you can acquire these cards and put them into your workshops. You can only be working on uh, two different airships at a time, one in each of your workshops. You win if you can get all six of the airships finished. You lose if you just run out of the cards you need and basically go through all six of the little decks without uh, completing the six airships. Those are the core basics. There are other things we might talk about, like these books that you can acquire that let you uh, do some uh, special abilities. And of course, each of the little mini expansions adds their own rules. But that's the basic idea. Rolling dice, trying to get these cards to complete these airship designs, and uh, discarding cards to give you more rerolls. Yeah, and the basics of the game are very similar between the solo and the co-op version. The only difference in the co-op version is instead of having two places you can build airships, you each have your own individual set of three of the six airships that you build, and you each have your own one space in front of you where you can build an airship, and then you have a joint space also. So there is a little bit of cooperation there. Um, It's not showing up on my list, so I figured I'd bring it up here. Yeah, it does show up on mine, so I'll get into that a bit more, but yeah, that's the basics, as Peter described. Before we get into our top fives, I will explain how we do things here. If it's your first time joining us, thank you. We talk about the top five things we think you need to know about the game, starting with number five, which is the least important thing, and working our way all the way up to number one, which is the most important thing. 
So my number five actually could have been my number one. It's really interesting. I think it was going to be one or five for me and nowhere in between. It is the biggest negative I have to the game. And the reason I have it at number five is I think it goes away with repeated plays. But my number five is the graphic design is awful. And when I say awful, I mean game-breakingly People don't want to play it a second time awful. And that's why I said, I think it could have been my number one as well. Like I've introduced this to three or four people and they did not want to play it again after playing it the first time because they were having such a hard time understanding how to play. If it was up to me and I just played it the one time with you and wasn't trying to review it, because I did have some fun with it and I do like Yahtzee mechanics in games, but The graphic design is so bad that it really makes the game hard to play. If they had, they have this very fanciful artwork and they also try to use symbols that tell you what the card is, but then they also have symbols at the bottom of the card that tells you every card that can combo with it. It's just too much information on one card. Maybe those symbols on the bottom are helpful for some people, but they're not helpful for me. They're not helpful for anyone playing the game the first time, and I think they actually take away from gameplay. I mean, I just, if it was my copy, I would literally black them out. Like, literally just black out all the symbols on the bottom of the card. The cards are so busy, the artwork is so crazy as it is, that it's hard to follow, and it makes the game harder to play for a game that's actually really pretty straightforward and simple to play. So, my number five is, the graphic design is just awful and it takes away from gameplay for me. So it's funny, I knew this was going to be on your list, and it's also on mine. My only question was how high it would end up. So it ended up on the exact same place on my list. It's also my number five, the art and graphic design, also a complete con. I'm not quite as negative on it, like it is a con, but it doesn't bother me as much. Although I guess it was your five, so it didn't bother you too much either. I do agree that it goes away pretty quickly. I have not had trouble getting people to play it again. Like Even my six-year-old, I just kind of told him to ignore the art somewhat and just focus on the icons, and he did fine. It didn't really bother him. But definitely, like I did a playthrough of this on YouTube, and there are so many people on there who are like, man, the art looks bad, the icons are confusing, the cards are too busy, and I, I can't disagree with them. We didn't kind of say our experience with the Oniverse uh, set of games. I like them a lot overall. I've played almost all of them. And I think this is probably the worst art out of the series. I'm not sure why, but it seems muddier. It seems less kind of uh, simple and cute, like they were trying to fit too much stuff going on in one place. And it is really distracting that the icons don't really match the art well sometimes. Like, (laughs) I know this is a small thing, but uh, like some of the ship in their art will be facing the opposite direction of like the icons and the icons will flip sometimes. It's like little niggling, annoying things that make the game a little bit harder to play. So not too big of a deal for me. Also my number five, but yeah, I I just think people need to kind of get past the art, which is unfortunate because I think for most of the series, the art is a draw and not something that pushes people away. Yeah. And again, the reason it's so low for me is I think by your second or third game, it really does go away. But that first game experience is just really bad. All right, so my number four is the fact that you have to construct a ship in a certain order. And that order is you have to do your pilots last. So you can do either the blueprint and or the propulsion first or second. You can switch those two, but you have to do the pilots last. And I think this creates a certain tension and a certain amount of strategy in the game. Like, do I discard pilots that come out early? 
do I use my books to hold on to pilots? So the book cards, and I'll get into those a little bit here because we didn't get too much into them. They give you three options. Number one is to grab a card, whatever dice you rolled, if it matches something. So let's say you rolled a full house. You can grab whatever is in the full house. You discard your book and you can hold on to that and then place it on your ships whenever you want later. Another option is to give you three re-rolls with a book or the third option with it is to let you add two cards back into the piles at the top because as you're discarding cards as you're playing so you need to discard a card to re-roll normally you will lose things and sometimes you'll lose things you need for later in the game so those books can be used to bring them back in i do like that those pilots having to go in your ships last creates a tense moment and doesn't make the book actions obvious it actually creates a lot of gameplay and strategy there So my number four is I love that you have to put the pilots in last because I think it kind of makes a huge part of the game for me. It's interesting. I mean, both of those things were fighting to be in my top five, and they totally could have been if it was on a different day or I was just kind of in a different mood. Especially the the book cards, I think, are a really interesting mechanic, and those almost made my list. I think they kind of show up in other ways, but yeah, I, I, I like both those things you talked about there. So my number four is something Peter already mentioned, uh, the two-player co-op. Something I've often felt with the Oniverse series is that the two-player really felt tacked on. And in the worst cases, like Nautilion, which I really enjoy, is one of my top ones in the series, and I play with my son frequently. But it's pretty much just that you take turns taking turns, but you're doing the exact same thing that one player would have done. So that's usually a negative. But here I found that the two-player co-op was... A little bit better. So I won't say this is like a full pro, but kind of like a mix leaning toward a pro. I think it's really smoothly integrated, the whole idea of having like a shared workshop. I think that does add more cooperation than I've seen in the Oniverse games in the past. So I think this can be a pretty fun one to try out two-player. Usually I would only recommend these games as solo, except in emergencies. But this one I think is completely fun and enjoyable as a two-player experience. So I, I think I can recommend it. Now, that being said, besides that shared workshop, you're not really doing much with each other. You're just kind of watching each other roll dice, and maybe you can discuss uh, strategies and suggest cards to take. But, you know, it's still a fairly limited cooperative experience and a fairly quick, simple game. But I think that this is a more successful two-player co-op experience than uh, the other Oniverse games I've tried that way. Yeah, I actually really like the co-op version of the game. I certainly liked it solo as well, but I like the tension it creates. So the one thing with the shared ship that you're building together is that the person whose ship it is has to put the pilot in. So the other person could actually put both other parts in, the blueprint and the propulsion, as long as the person whose ship it is puts in the pilot, and I think that creates a neat little co-op experience and some tension. Like, hey, save that pilot for me. You know we need it for this group ship, and you kind of want to clear the group ship out pretty quickly, too, so you guys can start working on another ship together. So I I like how it works. It wasn't on my list, but I agree that I really like the co-op in this one. Yeah, and another nice thing is that you do want to kind of, since you both have, uh, you each have your own three ships to complete... You do want to find a balance in, like, the pacing. Like, I complete a ship, you complete a ship, I complete a ship, you complete a ship. That's the ideal. But it often doesn't work out that way, and it does kind of make the choices of which cards to take tougher, because you might want to take a very simple card you've already rolled for for yourself, but if that puts you too far ahead of your partner, you could really mess up the entire, like, pacing of the game and make the ending almost impossible. 
So yeah, I mean, actually, maybe this is a full pro. I, I really do like the two-player co-op. I think it's 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 really successful for uh, such a simple game. Cool. All right. Well, my number three is the expansions. And anyone who's played an Oniverse game has seen this before. They have a lot of expansions, or as I like to call them, inspansions in the box, because they come in the box. Oh, man, that's, so that's good. You got to copyright that. <laughs> well, I can't take full credit. I've certainly heard it before. Um, I don't know where. I can't quote where now. I would love to give people credit, but uh, but I do like the term inspansion when it comes in the box, even though they call them expansions. So there are six of them that come with the game, and one thing they do really well, and this is, again, not specific to Arion, although I think it, it is done very well in Arion. I played a couple of them, is... It gives you something easier and it gives you something harder. And Mike, you pointed this out really well to me. It doesn't make the game harder. It makes it more complex for sure when you add these expansions in, but they don't make it more difficult per se. They'll give you something that helps you while at the same time giving you something harder, a new challenge to deal with as well. So it just adds to the replayability of the game. I mean, these games aren't expensive and to get basically seven games in the box is pretty amazing. And, you know, once you learn that base system, once you get past the graphic design, it's very easy to play the rest of the games. Like, you get used to seeing the cards over and over. You know what they look like. And so just these little tweaks to the gameplay, I really like what they do. Yeah, I'll get to that myself in a little bit. But my number three is the randomness. This is a dice game. And also the limited decision space. And there's a bit of a mix for me. I think it's going to hit different types of gamers uh, differently. So first of all, with just the core game, the decision space can be fairly uh, clear-cut. Like, it's obvious what you should go for in a given turn. Not all the time. You often have choices between books and things. And there's choices about which cards to discard to re-roll. But still, I could see some people looking at this and feeling like the game kind of plays them. I don't fully agree. That's why it's a mix. And, and really, this one doesn't bother me too much. I'm just kind of anticipating how other gamers might feel about it. But compared to something I also uh, covered recently on the YouTube channel, like Deep Space D6, I feel like this game played me less than that one. I feel like it did have more choices. But also, let's get down to it. It is a dice game. Yes, you have mitigation. Yes, you can do things. You have these pixies we didn't mention that you can uh, use to change any die to any value, but you only have three of them per game. But with that, it's still a dice game. And if you just, you know, roll terribly consistently for the entire game, or especially on those final key turns where you just got to make something come together, then you lose. And if you roll really well, then you're going to win. I think that's a simplification. I think the game gives you enough, like, uh, things to turn and things to mess with that you have a pretty decent control over your win or loss rate. But still, in the end, it's a dice game. Some people just will not enjoy it for that. So, you know, go in with your eyes open if you're considering buying it. Yeah, and I think one subtle thing they do to mess with the dice probability and dice luck as opposed to something like Yahtzee is they give you a six dice. And for most of the things you're going for, you don't need that six dice. For the straight, you only do a straight of five. You don't do a straight of six. For... The four of a kind, obviously, you only need four, three of a kind, two pair. So a lot of times you're not using all the dice, and I think it's subtle, but giving you that six dice really does mitigate the luck a little bit for me. And uh, it wasn't on my list, but I agree that, you know, sometimes, you know, you're just going to go for what you go for. But 
in the same way you would do that in Yahtzee as well. So I do think that there are a lot of comparisons here with Yahtzee. And uh, I think this is, you know, favorable in some ways and then unfavorable in other ways. Basically, Yahtzee being much simpler to play and much simpler to explain to people. I think this one, you know, takes a little bit more just because of 0.5 again, which should have been my one number one, maybe, but the uh, graphic design. All right, so my number two is I actually like the push-your-luck mechanic of discarding cards to re-roll dice. It works in multiple ways. Yes, when you first roll, you have an idea of what you're going to go for. And so if I'm going for four of a kind, maybe I don't discard my three of a kind because if I fall short of my four of a kind, well, I can still get my three of a kind. Or maybe I roll two pairs, so I leave some of the bottom ones. But you can't keep doing that because each deck of cards only has a limited number of cards. And so if you keep discarding the same from the same piles then you are quickly going to run out of those piles and certain piles have certain things. So only certain piles have certain pilots. Only certain piles have certain propulsion for your airship. And each pile is associated with its own ship's blueprint. So sometimes you're discarding from the piles. Even if I roll what I want, sometimes I'll discard from a pile just to get closer to getting that blueprint I know I'm going to need on the next turn or two. So... Sometimes you're not only discarding to re-roll, but you're discarding strategically to try to get closer to something else you want as well. So I really just like how that luck mitigation is used. I like how you don't need extra components for it. And I think it's a pretty genius little add to the game that doesn't add much in complexity, but adds a lot for strategy. Well, coming back to your number three, my number two is the expansions. It was a slightly higher for me than for you. I echo everything you said. I love uh, how much value you get in the game. I love how simple these are to integrate. I love that it's a uh, an easy, like a, a, a boon and a bane added together at the same time to kind of keep the difficulty somewhat consistent. The only thing I'll add that I think, again, I haven't played every Oniverse game, but I can't think of another one that did this. Even within each of the little mini expansions, the in-spansions, as you said, they have variants to make the game harder or sometimes easier. So, for example, my favorite expansion, the one that I do recommend players uh, play with pretty quickly, is the, I think it's like the Battleship. It's the first one, the uh, the very first expansion they introduce. And that one normally gives you some, uh, like, sort of bonus powers that change how the game plays. That's the good thing, but force you to build a seventh ship. That's the bad thing. But in that expansion, they have the option to take those power cards and shuffle them into the decks instead of giving them to you straight off the bat. So even within these six expansions they give you, you have the option to vary the game up even more. It really, and you know, and then you can mix and match. Like I'll, I'll play with expansion one and two. I'll play with three and four. You can go crazy and throw the entire kitchen sink in there and just see what happens. It's really great. Amazing value. I love this about the Oniverse series in general, but I did feel like they even threw in a bit more replay and variety in this one than on average. Yeah, I forgot to mention that, but that's a really good point. I forgot. You're right. In every single one, there's a way to either increase the difficulty, decrease the difficulty, or both. Now, one thing that they don't have in here, which is it's a, it's a minor quibble, but they don't tell you at all how to include the expansions. They don't say... Add one or add multiple. We suggest you play with only one at first and then add more and you can add them all together. Like they don't really tell you how to integrate them. I mean, it's quite obvious. Like they tell you on each one how to integrate it. But I didn't know like 
after playing with the first expansion? Should I just add the second expansion? Or should I take the first one out and play with just the second one? I mean, it's it's a little thing, but I wish they had done that. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't need it, but I'm kind of a veteran of the series, so for a new player, definitely that could have helped. Sure, all right. Well, getting to my number one, and I was actually surprised when you said you weren't going to include this, because for me, it is the one piece of strategy, the most important piece of strategy in the game, and that's those books. They're, they're just a luck mitigator throughout. So you can hold one book at a time, but it will give you three rerolls, which is amazing. So when that dice luck is just not going your way, or you know you need to get that straight and you have to roll a three, which, by the way, why is it always a three? I don't know. Every time I need a straight, I need a three, and I very rarely get it. So you use it as a luck mitigator. You can use it to bring cards back in the game. So you're never out of the game. So let's say you throw away all the pilots you need for that last ship. Well, as long as there's a book available, you can bring those pilots back into the decks and bring them back into the game, and that way you're never out of it. Now, the only thing you can't grab with a book is another book and put it back in because that would create a never-ending loop, so they thought about that. But I love how the books just keep the game going, and that way you also never feel out of it. So even when the end of the game comes, you still have a hope even if you know you've discarded all the cards you need of getting back in it, as long as there's a book left. So that's my number one. I really like how the books worked. And I think without it, I wouldn't like the game nearly as much. I think they really add a lot of the tactical depth to the game. Yeah. And I like them a lot. Again, they were on my honorable mentions, but my number one was your number two. I think this is more the tactical depth that I enjoy. And that is the, uh, the cards being discarded as sort of a resource to allow you to reroll. Now, you might have noticed this from other reviews we've done, but I am a sucker for an interesting, uh, like, cost mitigation and resource system in games. Like, I love games that use your hand of cards both for the cards you play and paying for those cards, such as uh, Summoner Wars is a good example. And I feel like this is similar in a way in that the very cards that you need are also the cards you're discarding. I think, like, on the back of the game box, it even said something along the lines of, you know, every uh, step you take toward winning the game is also losing the game for you. And I feel that tension as I play. Like, I'll often have, you know, three or four of the cards that are face up. I need to win, and I just have to discard one. And the nice thing is they give the players very simple information. Like, uh, it says right on the backs of each deck which cards are in there, because the decks are always the same. You shuffle them, but you're always going to have the same uh, eight cards in, like, the two-pair deck, for example. And you know exactly that there are two copies of each card in uh, each of those decks, like two copies of the cards that are in those decks. So you have really easy kind of probability of looking at the discard pile, like knowing, okay, I need two more of these, and there are only two more of them in all the decks, no matter what I do, unless I use the book, like Peter said. So I love that, like, the probability is easy to work out, that you can really do some nice, like, risk uh, benefit uh, calculation for which cards you want to use. That tension is so tough in the game as you choose which one to discard. And yeah, comparing it to something like Yahtzee, where there isn't that much tension necessarily on your first roll. You'll just kind of see what you get, and then you'll just go from there. And even the second roll, and you kind of only get the tension on that final roll when you like really need to get the thing you need. Here, I feel tension on basically every roll, because it is always a tough thing. It is always a costly thing to get another look at my dice and to try another time for, like, that combination I need. 
So that's what makes the game really come to life for me. The books are part of that. I mean, I, I can't discount them, but more importantly for me is this interesting resource management of losing the game as you try to win. Yeah, no, I mean, I mirror that completely. So, Mike, I stole a lot of your points. Why don't you go ahead and do your final thoughts first so you can steal <laughs> all my thoughts? Yeah, I thought we'd be somewhat similar because this is, you know, such a small game. I don't want to say this, like, with too much hyperbole because the game is still fairly new to me. I've certainly played it a whole bunch, but I've, you know, owned it for less than a month. But I do think this is shot up to be my favorite Oniverse game. And for those who are curious, uh, Nautilion and Oniram kind of fight for a second. I think Nautilion tends to win now because I do like the dice mechanics that uh, the designer does with these games. And then uh, Sylveon comes behind that, and then like Castellion and things are kind of the back. But yeah, I think this is great uh, for solo players, for two players, as long as you uh, like dice and don't kind of mind the uh, the luck that can be inherent in that sort of mechanic. And, uh, you know, look at the graphic design, see if you can get over it. I think you do after, like like Peter said, even halfway through my first game, it didn't bother me anymore. But it is an issue. But all that being said, I think the tactics here are so great for such a cheap, simple game. There's so much variety in those expansions. Uh, anybody who's not turned off by the uh, the dice or the art or the uh, graphic design, totally check this game out. I think you'll really, really enjoy it. It won't cost you too much. Yeah, for 25 bucks, I definitely think you're getting your money's worth. Now, again, you have to know you can get past that graphic design yourself, and I, I do think it'll be a barrier to introducing people to the game. Now, this is coming from someone who loves Yahtzee. Like, I grew up playing Yahtzee. My dad and I, I used to have him play all the time. It's kind of like my son with Uno. He keeps trying to get me to back to play Uno, and I was the same way with my dad. So uh, I feel bad now that I played, you know, so much Yahtzee with my dad. I, I just kept having, you know, <laughs> saying, let's play Yahtzee, let's play Yahtzee. <laughs> it's one of those games. So I do have a fondness for it. So I guess I don't mind dice mechanics in games. And that's why for me, it never even came up as a pro or a con. I just really enjoy them. Backgammon was another game I enjoyed growing up. And that's, you know, Roll and Move, the original Roll and Move game. So for me, I really liked it. I don't know if I like it better. I, so I've only played three of the Oniverse games. Oniram and this are the only ones I've really played quite a bit of. And I really do like Oniram. I like the interesting card play there. I mean, it's one of those games and it's a free app. So if you haven't played Oniram, download the app because there's no reason not to and play it for free. Just fumble through your first couple games. You're going to lose horribly. But then once you get it, you kind of get it. And I just love the interesting mechanisms that are in Oniram, and I love the interesting card play. Not that this doesn't have it, and maybe it's because I have so much app experience with Oniram, and maybe it's more fiddly playing it at the table, but this one definitely feels a little bit more fiddly to me, a little bit more that you're moving around. Don't get me wrong. None of these games are, are you know huge investments in that, but I did feel like Oniram just... I like the choices I have to make in that a little bit better. But I do still think this is a very good game. I am going to have a hard time getting it to the table with anybody. So I, I know that that isn't a problem for solo gamers. But uh, as long as you can get one other person to agree to play it with you, then, you know, I, I think you're going to have fun with it. So and there are there are interesting choices. It takes Yahtzee to the next level, I guess is what I'll say. Well, and don't forget, I know you've probably been playing the app mostly, but Oniram has a lot of deck shuffling. This game, pretty much once you set him up, you don't have to shuffle those decks again. So that uh, 
pushes it somewhat back in <laughs> Arion's camp for me. Um, sure. Yeah, now I'm like playing with the actual card game could be a little annoying just to shuffle and shuffle and shuffle over and over again. Yeah, I mean, I love the app for Oniram, though. I, I mean, I think it's a must-have on your phone for most people. Oh, man, it's it's a fabulous implementation. We're, we're not doing, uh, you know, electronic review today, but it's it's such a good version of the game. All right, so that is Arion. Yeah, now we're going to get into our design discussion, which, again, is a little bit of a different one because we're looking at multiple games and how uh, companies can tie games together with the same theme or the same setting. And, yeah, I think there's some pros and cons here. This is an odd one because, you know, usually I think the design discussions we have could apply even to a first-time designer just trying to kind of cut their teeth on their first game and maybe make some mistakes or avoid some. But this one, you know, kind of only applies to people who have at least one somewhat successful and visible game. I mean, I guess you could make a game that sold 100 copies and just be like, hey, who cares? I'm making an expanded universe. Here's my next game. But this is mostly going to be for, like, medium and larger publishers who have a property that does well enough to kind of warrant spinoffs and warrant games in the same setting. Well, I will say our first game, and it was called Squires, and you don't have to worry about it. There's no game called Squires coming out from us anytime soon. But our first game that we had designed, the whole point of the game was it was supposed to be the first game in a series. So I do think it is. it can be a new designer mistake to try to create this whole universe before you've created game one. And so I think that's where it does apply to first time and new designers. Yeah, basically avoid it. Because, yeah, man, I just remembered we, we were planning Salvation Road to be, like, a whole series. And I think that'd still be cool. But do you remember that? We had, like, ideas for where you go after you reach Salvation. And then, like, when people attack Salvation. And, <laughs> like, all these, oh yeah, you absolutely. know, second and third. Oh, and that's a little bit different. That's sort of a continuing storyline. It's almost like uh, add-on campaigns. But so bringing it back, uh, just kind of stick with cons and things to worry about with this idea. I think um, the, the, the biggest example I can think of of what I'm about to talk about is uh, Gloomhaven and Founders of Gloomhaven. And I think if you have a really strong theme and you try to sell the next game on the same theme, players will naturally expect, if not identical mechanics, at least a similar genre of game, a similar type of game, and some similar mechanics – and that can, I think, actually hurt a game sales if people feel like... Now, I don't know how much Founders of Gloomhaven has sold. I get the feeling that it's far less successful than Gloomhaven, but what isn't? <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think you can kind of alienate your player base if they're going into a theme expecting a certain something and, like, the mechanics are too different or the type of game is too different. And they're like, well, I didn't want this. I wanted a game similar to the first one, so... So it's kind of something to be cautious about if you you do this whole kind of expanded universe uh, unified theme uh, setting to a game. Yeah, and I mean, I think Fantasy Flight does it really well. Obviously, they have Star Wars, so they have a million Star Wars games. But I also think they do it really well in their own Tyranoth universe. I mean, they're all fantasy games. Maybe they're dudes on the map games, or maybe they're dungeon crawl games. But they tend to tie them together, even Runebound in that universe where they're, you know, running over and doing adventures. It's all in a similar universe, and the way they tie it together is by characters, by using the same characters over and over. And so you get to know and love some of the characters 
characters in that universe. So I do think it is a cool way to build a universe. But the one thing I'm going to say is you've got to build a good game first. Don't worry about game two or three. Make game one really good because your, your universe isn't going to go anywhere unless you have a good first game. Yeah, and my other con, I didn't have a lot of cons. I think uh, mostly there are some cool things you can do with this. But my other thing to sort of be cautious about is I think some companies assume the setting is more popular than it is and maybe falsely associate their game's success with the setting and like the theme more than with uh, the mechanics and the uniqueness there. So an example here of a game that didn't do very well is uh, Sentinel Tactics, which is, uh, you know, sort of a spinoff of the Sentinels of the Multiverse game. And I think maybe they thought people were more attached to these heroes and really wanted to play them in another game. But I don't know if the design of that game was great or not, but clearly the theme itself was not enough to sell it. And I would say the same thing with uh, with like Star Wars games and Lord of the Rings games. Fantasy Flight has had some misses and some hits, and the theme is not enough to just like kind of push that game through. You have to have a great design. So it's really, in a way, the same point you just made, Peter. But yeah, don't, don't like assume that... My setting is so great that everyone's going to buy it. <laughs> like, uh, gamers are discerning enough, I think, that that's not going to work on most of them. Yeah, and I think in the Oniverse series of games, they do a really good job because they don't throw it at you. I mean, you could tell from the artwork. You could tell from, like, the names are all kind of weird. You could tell, like, that it is supposed to be the same universe. But it also isn't, like... An Oniverse game or whatever, or maybe they do do that. Oh, actually, they do. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm pretty sure corner. it's right on the cover. Yes, that's hilarious. So I guess they do throw it at you a little bit. But I will say the one thing that they're really good at here is keeping it consistent. So what I mean by that is the games all play very, very differently, but they have a very similar weight and they have a very similar mechanisms as far as having the expansions included in them and they all have a little bit of card play or a little bit of dice play you know they're not too heavy i feel like they're all around the same weight of game as well and so i really think that they do that really well with the uh with the oniverse games is just making it feel like a family even if it's not specifically like oniverse 2 yeah, I do think the Oniverse games are one of the, like, probably the most successful I can think of of a series that is both somewhat thematically linked because the designer also does all of the art. So it's the exact same artist doing everything. That's a big help, I think. But also being very similar in weight and even sometimes in some mechanics and, like, the structure of the game. I also think something that's kind of fun with these, and this is uh, something you'd sort of just mentioned, uh, again, with the Oniverse. They don't necessarily call out the connections in really obvious ways, but they have sort of Easter eggs that I think are kind of fun. Like, uh, as a small example, one of the two crew types in this are these little, like, dark mountainish like looking guys, and they're basically the same as uh, the miniature kind of guy, because that's something else they do in all these games. They have, like, one, like, little... Uh, what's that material? Like, it seems like Bacolite or whatever. Uh, they have, like, like, this one little piece in the game that you use with one of the expansions. So in Oniram, the like piece you had was this scary-looking kind of ghost guy. And correct me if I'm wrong, I'm pretty sure that the crew members in Arion are like the exact same guys. So it's like, hey, those monsters from the other game are now showing up in flying airships. <laughs> and just like those little Easter eggs, I think are fun. And uh, this is very similar to 
expanded universes like Marvel being obviously the the most successful one of all time and kind of the one that started the whole idea of this. But yeah, like I, I think it is fun for people to be big fans of something and then see it show up somewhere else and just kind of have that recognition and like that feeling like, ha, I know what that is because I'm such a big fan of these things. And I think this uh, lends itself to that. Yeah, I mean, the other very successful series that I think people are probably screaming at their I, you know, iPads right now is the Tiny Epic series. So you got Tiny Epic Kingdoms, Tiny Epic Mechs, Tiny Epic Zombies. But are are those the same thing? Th- those are weight tied and branding tied. I don't think they're even slightly trying to be in the same universe. Like even Tiny Epic Defenders and Tiny Epic Kingdoms, which are both fantasy themes, I didn't get the feeling that they're set in the same place. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I guess those are more, I guess that is a good comparison here, though, as far as like, you kind of know what you're getting. So I think they do a good job in that branding, even if it's not in the same universe universe, it's in the tiny epic universe, I guess you could could say. Sure. And uh, to kind of build on that, like on the other side of things with uh, games that are not mechanically the same, but do have kind of consistent other elements... I really like consistent characters in games and where I can see like my favorite characters go from one game to another and like kind of be attached to those characters. Uh, Red Dragon Inn, I haven't played that much, like the actual Red Dragon Inn game, but Battle for Greyport like has some of those characters show up. And again, it's sort of that Easter egg thing, kind of fun. Uh, Terranoth, as you had mentioned, like, I, I still feel like I want a little bit more backstory on some of these characters, but the fact that I've seen, like, the exact same characters in Descent, in Runebound, in uh, Warhammer Quest, or sorry, <laughs> I always do that, in Heroes of Teradoth, um, I, I think it's kind of cool that you can get sort of this attachment to them, and that can make the setting and the games more exciting for you. And even uh, the Arkham Files, you know, like, they... I've, I've played Arkham Horror 2nd Edition, Arkham Horror 3rd Edition, uh, Elder Sign, uh, Arkham Horror Card Game, and you see the same characters again. They're kind of like old friends, you know? Like, hey, here's... I mean, it's almost the same thing like when I play uh, Lord of the Rings Journeys in Middle-Earth. I'm like, hey, I want to play Legolas. I always like Legolas. You know, I can be like, oh, I want to play Calvin Wright. I always like Calvin Wright. So I think that's a cool thing you can do with uh, this kind of shared theme and setting. Well, and it saves publishers money and development time as well. I mean, if... If people out there knew how long artwork took to get together for a game, I think they would be shocked. And that's why you may hear about a game, and we may have been talking about our games a year or two years ago that you won't see for another year or two, because we have to wait for the artwork to get done. Yeah, whereas Fantasy Flight is clearly reusing Lord of the Rings art and Arkham art as much as they can. And why not? You know, it's not hurting anything, in my opinion. Yeah, nobody's complaining about it, really. And I mean, it's funny you mentioned that some of these games are in the same universe. This is something they tried once, and I don't think they've gone back to the well on it. I remember when I bought Rune Wars, it actually had cards, so I could use the same miniatures that came in Rune Wars for the heroes in that. I could use it for Runebound, second edition as well. So they kind of tried to get you to, you know, hey, you already own this game, you have some heroes for it, why don't you go ahead and buy runebound as well and you can use these same heroes in it or you own runebound hey you want some new heroes go buy this hundred dollar coffin game so you can get like two new heroes for your game yeah and i think that is if you can pull it off it's it's kind of a magic trick of branding to build this customer loyalty to a setting you know and i guess dungeons and dragons has done this well for years you know like the forgotten realm setting has video games has RPG games, has board games, has card games that are all kind of set in that same uh, that same universe. 
And if you hook those players, they're going to be like, oh, you know, they'll at least try something new. Um, you know, like I, I wouldn't try every new Star Wars game because those just kind of seem to be churned out sometimes. But I'm going to at least try every single Arkham Files game because I've liked some of those games so strongly and I at least want to see what they do with it new. Like maybe I'll sell it or trade it, but I'll certainly make that first purchase. Yeah, and the one thing I will say, though, is we've talked a lot about the mechanics in the game and how tying them together mechanically is super important. So you're not having, again, Gloomhaven's our example, and I know we've used this in the past, too. Gloomhaven and Founders of Gloomhaven, completely different games. One's a very heavy Euro game, another one's a dungeon crawl game. So clearly, mechanically, we want them to be similar like they are in the Oniverse, but also, thematically, I think you want them to be similar as well. And what I what I mean by that is the theme has to make sense in all the settings. You know, you don't want to have a game about dragons and then next one the dragons are in space, right? You don't want to stretch people's imaginations that far where now you've broken the universe that you put them in already just to make it this other game fit within that theme. So I do think you want to stay within constraints as far as your theme as well. Treat it like a valuable IP. If you've created this great IP and people are really into it and they're buying your games because of it, make sure that you stay true to it the way that, well, I was going to say Star Wars <laughs> would stay true to their IP. But uh, I don't know if people who saw the... Uh, the yeah, the, the prequels the, would agree with that, <laughs> and and Last Jedi. I think there's some differences of opinions on all of those. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess you're never going to get fully bought in opinions on anybody as far as like what you like or don't like with the IP. But I will say that you want to, as much as you can, have a vision for that world and make sure you're inside of that vision. Yeah, and kind of the final point I have that builds off of that is. I think we have so many kind of cliched themes and settings in games. And heck, we've even done it too. You know, some of our games have like fairly basic uh, settings that have been done before. But if you come up with an awesome IP, if you come up with an awesome setting, please leverage it. Please use it in multiple games because that's so much more interesting than like another game about some, you know, English dynasty doing this or... Uh, you know, another game about generic fantasy people doing that. Build a backstory. I mean, you know, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien took some ideas and made the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit and just, like, kind of amazing fantasy. Uh, some of my favorite authors have done the same thing. Uh, you know, again, going to books, uh, the Dark Tower series by Stephen King, like, tries to kind of combine every book he's done or a lot of books he's done into one, like, kind of expanded universe there. If you can make that happen with games and like reward your players for their loyalty to those games and take a unique IP and keep using it instead of kind of going back to the well of basic ideas. I think that's awesome. I, I fully encourage any designer to do it. You know, I don't know if any of our IPs are strong enough to do that with yet, but if, if people fall in love with one of them, I'd love to kind of keep exploring that universe. Yeah. And I'll say go with the book, you know, staying on the book theme here, go with what books do as far as introducing people as well don't make the theme so integrated into your game and so many like in-jokes from previous games and things like that that people can't get into them. Look at how books do it. They tell you about how magic works in this world or whatever every time you read a new book in the series. So if it's your first book in the series, yeah, you might have missed some of the backstory or whatever else, 
but you are still going to have a basic understanding of how the world works. Don't assume people have played your previous two, three, four games in that universe when you're you know, forcing it down their throat. Again, Ariane does a very good job. If you know nothing about the world, you don't need to. It's fine. You can just play this one game as it's one game. But people who have an appreciation for the universe will get more out of it than someone who's, you know, never played around in that universe before. All right. Any final thoughts, Peter? Well, just that. Make sure you have a tied together, cohesive universe. Make sure each game in the universe is a good game in and of itself. And make sure it's true to your universe. Don't bend your universe to make your game mechanics work. Yeah. And I'll just end with uh, related. Protect your brand. This goes for any publishing company, any designer. If you start putting out some uh, some trash or some half-baked ideas, then you're going to be known for half-baked ideas, potentially. And same thing with a theme or an IP or a setting. If you uh, publish a couple games in a row that sort of uh, mess with that setting or undercut the things you've set before, it's going to be tough to get people to come back. So if you want to go this route, just try to go for that consistency as best you can. I know every game can't be a hit, but at least try not to have any of them be a complete flop. Well said. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for joining us again on another episode of One Stop Co-op Shop. Thanks for listening to another episode of the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Please check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop, where you can get great game playthroughs and five and five reviews. If you want to have a conversation with us, the best place to reach out to all of us is on the Slack channel. Links are in the show notes. You can also talk to us on Twitter at MVP Board Games or email us at MVPBoardGames at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us again, and we'll see you next week with another top five list. <laughs> you were like, I was kind of excited to discuss. That I was yeah, no, no, I, no, I, no, I agree. I, that, was a, that was a super dramatic pause. I was like waiting for it. <laughs> <laughs> What was that? Jeez, my lips. Tiny epic children. (laughs) Uh, That sounds like a terrible one right there. Hey, Mike. Yeah. What are you doing Saturday? Playing with you in my universe. Your expanded universe because you eat too many burgers. You get it? What? Like you're expanding? Ah, uh, <laughs> burgers. <laughs> <laughs>